Corrections come for no particular reason. They just pop out of nowhere and the market goes down. And why does it go down? Because a lot, if you got 20% of the market volume being done by amateurs who expect the market to go up and they 26. all decide to sell at the same 26% and they all decide to sell at the same time, we'll get a correction in the market. Yeah. So just be aware that corrections happen. Corrections are necessary in a market to wither, to wean out the deadwood. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, and welcome back to the Personal Wealth Coach. This is another exciting second hour. We've got questions lined up. Uh, this is Jake McClure, and on the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. Together, we're going to talk about things that are not rare, but we call them rare. We're going to talk about valuable items that are less valu valuable sometimes, Um what else can we say that's kind of oxymoronic? Oh, yeah, we're kind of, we're both oxy and moronic. Uh, when you combine it, we do uh, contradict ourselves quite regularly as well. We have a, I have a tiny, I have a tiny, I have a question before the question comes out. I would like to have one tiny tidbit of announcement that I think is really fascinating. All right, let's do it. Let's, let's announce the tiny tidbit. Morningstar actually announced that. Roughly 50% in 2020, roughly 50% of actively managed funds outperformed their indexes in 2020. And I know that you've heard again and again and again, that I've heard this again and again and again, that only 15% or some or 10% or whatever of actively managed mutual funds outperform their indices. The fact is that that's not a very good analysis because it includes money market funds and a lot of other things like that. Yeah, and it includes index funds in the mix, which is just right. not so well, an no. index fund is not going to outperform its index. So actually the percentage is somewhat better. And in certain asset classes, it's a lot better in the article that Morningstar published, uh, not only said that about only 50% of, uh, funds outperform their respective indices in 2020, but in certain asset classes, such as, uh, diversified emerging markets and some of the smaller size stocks, in some of the specialty areas, the the majority of actively managed funds outperform the index. So it's just dismissing a myth that's been around for goodness over twenty years now. The index funds always outperform actively managed funds. Uh, a man, a for a manager in an index in a in an actively managed fund that has historically over a long period of time over moving averages outperformed their underlying index generally tends to do so as long as that manager is there. This is what we've seen that's anecdotal, and I can't show you a statistical analysis to prove that. I've just noticed it over time. So those are, those are good things. Um, we actually have two questions hanging out there, and they're related. So Alan uh, says he believes he heard Governor of Alaska, Alaska Dunleavy uh, say that Alaska has all the rare earth minerals we need and can now do it economically as well as keeping it relatively clean. His question is, do you believe him? Uh, economically, sure, yeah. I think it's possible to do it. The relatively clean, we need some new technologies. Well, it can, it can be done relatively clean. The problem is it's going to be more expensive than buying it from China where they don't do it relatively clean. That's, that's Chinese, the thing. Yeah. 
The Chinese just dig it out of the ground and pollute the rivers. They don't care. And in the United States, we do care a lot about killing off all the fish and the wildlife in the area by as we dig it out of the ground and manufacture it bearers. We need to be willing to pay more. It really this is the big thing about importing things from China. Many of the things we import from China we could make in the United States. We would just have to pay more because we pay American workers more to make them and we don't mess with the environment to the degree that the Chinese do. Yeah, just so, here's a very quick, easy example of this. Um, and I said I was going to talk about some clean energy replacement things that were both economical and cleaner technologies. The, China's the number one manufacturer and producer of plastic on the planet. They are not a big petroleum product manufacturer or producer. So how is that possible? They're not importing huge amounts of petroleum products to make plastic. Well, Honeywell has patented technology that they're using in China to convert coal to plastic. That's not clean. That's extremely not clean. It's maybe the dirtiest way to make plastic is to use coal to do it. That same technology that Honeywell invented, it's not legal to use it in the United States in the same way they're doing it in China. So exactly what you're saying with rare earths, we, we would have to pay more for exactly the same plastic even considering that we would ship it across the Pacific from China, we would still pay more to make it cheaper. I'm not cheaper, to make it cleaner. So that one piece of technology I'm going to hit and then come right back to the, to the rare earths. And that's in fracking. The, the waste liquid, it's called an, an acid wash that's used when you're fracking. And I'm very familiar with fracking. I've done a lot of analysis on individual wells and on wells across large spectrums. I've worked with geologists on this. This is one of the things that I've got a lot of knowledge about. In Texas, early on, we said, you can't leave that old acid wash under the ground. You're going to have to pump it up when you're done spraying it. Now, Texas is not known as being an environmental state, except that it really is when it comes to conservation of animals and plants, most of the land in Texas is privately owned and privately owned landowners don't like to watch their property be damaged. So we're a lot more uh, environmentally sensitive than most other states would believe, but we wrap it around the concept of being economically sensitive at the same time. So we passed a law at the legislature saying you got to pump this acid wash back up out of the ground. We don't know what it's going to do. It might leak into the water. You might have it coming out of people's tap water. We, we're, we're pulling it up out of the ground. Well, the fracking companies did not like that. I mean, fracking's really developed in Texas. And they, they were like, this is going to make everything more expensive. We already have an uphill battle with this new technology to come in uh, against the Saudis who just basically have to kick the sand and black stuff comes up. We've got to blast the rock and digest it before we pull out the soup and separate it out. And there's our oil. It's going to be more expensive already. Well, the, the state legislature said, too bad. You got to do this cleanly. We don't want to destroy the property value. So they did. That's, that's the battle that goes on. And I know a lot of people don't like that think that there is a balance that has to be maintained there. They want one or the other. Right. Between free enterprise and you might even call it socialism where the state state control. 
Right. State the state needs to regulate the commons. And the commons is if you do something on your property that damages somebody else's property. Let's just say you decide to have a fracking well on your property and you don't pump the stuff out and your neighbor's well gets polluted because of it. You could say, too bad, so sad. It's a free market. I can do what I want to do. Well, the state of Texas said, no, you can't because we need to protect the common property and the water supply in Texas is common property. So what was the result? Very good sense. The result was that these fracking companies now have to pump this stuff out of the, out of the, ground and then they were going oh no what do we do with it it's 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 a lot of acid you don't just drop it some where are we going to put this stuff new companies came around that figured a way to clean it up a bit further refine all the petroleum out of it and then reuse the acid bath that acid bath is expensive to put together well then they can turn around and reuse that acid bath and we've refined our uh, acid uh, acid bath mixtures to have mixtures that are easily used again. And the end result is that Oklahoma did not pass a law that said pull the stuff out of the ground. They have exactly the same rock layer in the same thickness, and it's less expensive to get the petroleum products in Texas because we're recycling the acid wash. We took a more expensive route that led to a less expensive production. And in Oklahoma, Oklahoma during that same time period went from being not on the chart at all as far as seismic activity to the number one seismic activity in North America because of fracking. And that's not a a theory, by the way. This is easily proven. All you have to do, there's places you can go to look at seismic data, go to Google Earth, Put in the coordinates of where the where the uh, epicenter was. Zoom in. You're going to find a fracking farm. It, it, this is not this is not hard to to show. Leaving that stuff in the ground continues to eat away at at the at the bedrock, which causes earthquakes. So the uh, the result is number one, we protected the property value. Number two, we get we did it cleaner. And number three, we did it more efficiently and more profitably. So doing the same thing in rare earths is what we need to do. That means that we need to think outside the box. It means that we have to set restrictions on ourselves and say, all right, how do we do this the best way we possibly can for the most money? And now back to you on rare earths. Um, Alan asked the question, is the governor telling the truth? The governor of Alaska says on the radio that Alaska has all the rare earth materials we need to have and can now do it economically as well as keeping it relatively clean. I believe that's true, but he's going to take some help. This is where the government again comes in to the picture. Um, you think, and it, it goes with, with uh, Roger's question. One of his questions is about, do you think the government needs to be involved in subsidizing rural broadband? And I think, and my answer is yes. The government subsidized rural mail delivery. It subsidized rural telephones. Electricity and, now, and electricity roads. Electricity and roads. And it's time for them to get the broadband out there. The, the uh, economic the, boon, the economic reward that we get for that kind of subsidy where we are saying, hey, we need to get broadband out into the most rural areas. And, and the, the follow-up question is on, on Roger. Thanks. This is a fantastic, uh, well-thought-out thing. Will the government assistance be good or bad in developing rural broadband? 
and seems like Elon Musk is already accomplishing this. Well, what are we talking about with Elon Musk? Uh, a lot of satellites. Yeah, SpaceX is throwing up a lot of satellites. They're in the middle of their beta test to get this basically broadband internet to everybody on the planet. We need more than more than one type of broadband to everyone on the planet. That's the that's the thing that's most important to understand here. Those satellites are great. It costs some money on the front end to get set up. It's around $500 to get the equipment and to install it costs more if you're not into that. So it could cost you as much as $1,000 to get started on that. And it may be worth it. It absolutely might be worth it. The point is that when you have electricity going out to the rural area, what did that accomplish? Well, it made it so that you could do business out there. This is one of those weird things. We talk about it occasionally. The center growth in automation in the United States in any industry is around agriculture. The fact that our prices on food are continuing to drop when we look at it in a long time frame, during periods when population is ballooning around the planet, says something very clearly. We're automating in the rural area. I, I have direct um, direct experience with this in that I've got in-laws that have farms that are completely automated. Well, how did that happen? Well, they've got to have broadband. They absolutely have to have broadband for this to work. And there's whole areas of the rural environment that do not have any access to broadband, which means that these smaller farms cannot compete with the bigger farms because they don't have broadband access. The other thing about SpaceX experiment, and it is an experiment to put a lot of satellites up. First off, as an astronomer, I object to it because it puts a lot, doing astrophotography is becoming more and more difficult because there's so many satellites up there streaking across the pictures, but that's beside the point. The important thing is we haven't tested it yet. We don't know that it's going to work. We know that it works to some degree, but I know that right now, if you can get satellite broadband, it's slow, it's, it's slow, but it works. The problem is during a thunderstorm, you don't have it anymore. Where with SpaceX in a thunderstorm, theoretically, it doesn't stop. You still we'll got see. it. We'll see. It's one of those things where if the whole world goes on broadback, can, can SpaceX handle it? Can we put enough satellites up? And, and like Jake said, having two systems to do it, I think, works. Uh, the, we have, that's all about capacity. I mean, if if they have one server malfunction at SpaceX, it could bring down the whole network. We've seen that happen in other networks. I, I'm not suggesting it will happen, but it could happen. And if your entire business is built around that as your only source of broadband, it's a problem. Having multiple sources of data, multiple methods of connecting to the to the marketplace as a whole or to your own equipment so that you can continue to man, to manufacture whatever it is that you're doing or grow whatever it is that you're trying to grow. These are vital things. These is not a little issue. Um, we got another question right in the middle of that question that I think fits in with what we were just talking about. What do you think is the likelihood of developing new battery technology that doesn't need lithium? Very, very high. We already have new technology that's being researched that has greater energy density than lithium. The problem is that it's just as dirty. So lithium, when it was coming out, you know, when, when Elon Musk started Tesla, 
the battery technology for lithium had only been applied to uh, PC laptop type situations and very small batteries for phones. So to scale that up to an automobile, obviously that takes a lot more stuff, but the technology also increased. So the energy density on all of our batteries has increased. That's how much, how much power it can hold. And the speed of recharging has sped up. Lithium has been amazing for that, but there's all kinds of different types of membrane technology, which is what a lithium battery is, that lets electrons travel back and forth to keep stored energy. Lithium is less dangerous and less dirty than a lot of the other alternatives. There will be cleaner and better alternatives. I don't have any doubt of that. We're at the baby, baby stages of this technology. There will be cleaner and better technology, just like the first internal combustion engines didn't have any method of controlling what it was spitting out into the air. You just burned it, and it, whatever came out was fine. That led to other rare metals being important, like palladium and platinum and so on, for our emissions controls. So just expect technology will get better on anything that there's a demand for. There is going to be an increasing demand for batteries. There's no doubt about that. We're getting hooked on them already. Can you imagine going back to a wired telephone at this point? <laughs> and just that's your only method of communication with the world is you got to go to your wired telephone to do it. The only way we can have wireless is if we don't have a power wire. And the interesting thing about wired telephone lines and cable lines that we as cable TV gradually declines. It's the same poles. The poles that were put up to carry the telephone lines are the ones that are carrying the cable TV that is gradually deteriorating, but that's where most of us get our uh, internet capability in our houses right now is over those lines because it's just not cost-effective to broadcast everywhere and everything to your house. The line of sight is rough, and there's just a lot of reasons that it's far more effective to use a wire if the wire is available. And that's one of the reasons I think that the we need... Anytime that you have infrastructure that doesn't belong to any one person, it's appropriate for the government to get involved. Building roads and highways and bridges, obviously, is a prime example. But so is the infrastructure that allows us to communicate. It's just not economically, it's not economically feasible for private companies to run lots and lots of line or whatever, or put up lots and lots of poles or lots and lots of towers Even to get to us to get into the rural areas. And if we don't want the rural areas to completely dry up and the cities to be jammed, and, and this is the point, if we if we jam the cities, we create a big problem with traffic congestion and pollution and a whole series of other things. So encouraging people to spread out involves the government getting involved in spreading out internet capabilities. Yeah, and there's, there's some pretty easy examples to our local office. We have a, an office in Salado, Texas. And in Salado, Texas, Salado is a tiny little village. It's got a population somewhere around 3,000 people. It's right on I-35. Broadband access is throughout Salado, Texas. This tiny little village has great broadband access and competing uh, sources for it. So you can price multiple sources. It's different technologies from DSL to wireless to 5G to 
T1 to cable. There's all different ways of getting the, the access. But if you go two miles west or two miles east, you lose it. It's all gone. Because for a cable company to take a cable out to a rural property that they've got to run extra cable line three miles. I used to live in a place that had a three quarter of a mile driveway. So how do you get that cable out there? That's really expensive. If you're a private operator, you just say, I'm not going to offer service in that area. Well, what does that do to the people that live in that area? They might have a business that's booming that they need the internet speed connection to be improved. And I've seen some amazing workarounds where people have uh, 30 or 40 connections to the internet at low speed and do something called shotgunning where they're sending packets through all of it and they have a router on this end that puts it all back together. It's extremely expensive and it obviously slows down business. This should be a thing that the uh, conservative side of the economic and political spectrum should be looking at and saying, let's absolutely do this. Because if you look at the concentration of conservative people, it's in the rural, rural area. And if you don't keep up with the broadband speed of the liberals in the big cities, you're going to fall behind. It's just across the board, business, uh, information flow of any kind will fall behind if you're slower. That's so. That type of infrastructure spending, even though Elon Musk is putting, I think I'm applauding this. I'm watching the experiment of the network of satellites up there. I'm looking at it to say for our office, for people that are working re remotely in rural areas, should we pay to have it installed? Well, we're going to wait for the beta to be done. We're going to look at the, the uh, sustainability, not of environmental practices, but of how long is it up? How long do they sustain the connection? Do we lose it in bad weather? And then once we get all that stuff answered, we are definitely going to go that route. But if we had another alternative in the same area that we can compare and contrast and say, all right, this one obviously more reliable, we're going to stick to that, then we would. What's our alternative if we don't go to satellites for those people in our office? Hotspots on the cell phone. That's not all that reliable either. Yeah, and the issue is you don't want to have a monopoly. Elon Musk is a wonderful entrepreneur, and he's got a wonderful company, but a corporation is going to charge the highest price they can get away with. That's the nature. I and, mean, that's that's his job for his shareholders, is be as profitable as he can be. And if you've got a large portion of the country in the rural areas where the only internet connectivity they have, and internet connectivity is becoming vital to function as time goes by, um, and the only one company provides it, and you only have one possible source of it, you definitely have a monopoly, and that is the problem. It's wonderful that he's doing it, and I appreciate it. Again, I want to appreciate the fact that he's doing it tremendously, but that's not to say that we shouldn't, the government should not be involved in providing infrastructure uh, rather than having a single source for this. And and there there are corollaries, there's parallels that we can look back throughout history when we when we expanded the railroad system. That was private companies using public right public right of way that a public that a private company could build on now there were more than excesses there were definitely some abuses that took place during that period but it's an effective the, way of doing this the way the railroads got across the country is the government literally granted huge tracts of land to the railroads 
that they could sell along the railroads. And of course, the price of land went up if they put the railroad in, and then the railroad company would sell that back to people who wanted to live there. Uh, the government basically had a huge giveaway to the rail, private railroads to get the cross-country railroads in. Otherwise, it would never have been the money to do it. So the government throughout our history has been supportive of creating communications infrastructure, and I think they should continue to do so. Now, the, just to hit one more thing, new battery technology. Um, the alkaline uh, quinone battery is the top leading research at the moment, and it's got greater energy density and faster charge times than lithium, but it's dirty. It's dirty like lithium. It's not as flammable as lithium. That's nice. So the whole thing about cars catching on fire and taking you know, eight hours to put the fire out and then the fire department having to call the, the car manufacturer to say, how, how do we turn this thing off? The fire's going, but we can't stop it. Um, that's one of the problems with lithium. And there's other alternatives that will come along that will be safer than this. Uh, the, uh, all of them are membrane-based nanostructured batteries. That's the category that you're talking about. Uh, and the membrane is just passing through the membrane is how the power is transmitted out again. It's how it's charged. It goes one way through a, a membrane and how it's uh, uncharged, it goes the other way. The important thing to remember about driving a car is it takes a lot of energy. And so you have to store a lot of energy somewhere, whether it's in the fuel tank or in a lithium-ion battery. And the, the issue is that if you have a sudden impact on the fuel tank or on the lithium-ion battery, you're going to get that energy released all at once or it released over a period of time. And it's just something we just have to acknowledge. There's no way to make a low-energy car that I know of. Uh, even if you the, 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 the ideal, theoretically, in the articles that I've read, is to have fuel cells. Well, fuel cells require hydrogen. In case you didn't know it, hydrogen is highly explosive. Hydrogen yeah. and oxygen, as a matter of fact. Wait, and that's wait. really interesting when they come together. Oh, the humanity! Wait, sorry. Yeah. I had to that throw that out there. The explosion of the space shuttle on yeah. liftoff was, was basically that going on. Yeah. And you just, we need to get, the point is we need to accept the fact that there's a risk involved in creating an energy an energy storage device. Yeah. By the way, gasoline's also flammable. Just as a side, I note. have seen many car wrecks that I've driven around on the on the interstate where the cars are burned down, just like that Tesla was. Right. And the people inside died in the fire, and there was no national headline over it. Huh. I don't get why the Tesla. Admittedly, the guy wasn't in the driver's seat. That's why Although, it's a headline because he was not in the driver. He was he was abusing the thing and then caused a really bad reaction. But if you got in any car and pushed the accelerator down and then got out from behind the driver's seat, I would rather be in a Tesla in that situation than any other vehicle. <laughs> it's still messed up, but uh, the idea is don't do that. I think that's the thing. There's the headline was that. A guy got a new Tesla. He was showing his best friend the coolness of the Tesla. Nobody really knows what happened. They got in the car. When he got in the car, he was behind the driver's seat. The car drove off rather quickly. He wasn't behind the driver's seat. He was in the driver's seat. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, he was in the driver's seat. When it wrecked, he was in the back seat. Nobody was behind the wheel. And it's, it's, since, it, since it won't start with the seat belt unbuckled, 
I presume I would guess he unbuckled the seatbelt and the crash threw him into the back seat. I, I think he may have climbed into the back seat, and that's the thing. He was sitting upright in the back seat. Oh. Uh, and that's the thing. And this is why it made headlines. And it's gonna make headlines when an autopilot type car has an accident. It does not make headlines when a pilot car has an accident. It just absolutely there's there'd be no room for anything else except for all of our accidents. We get into a lot of accidents in the United States. It's rare when a, when a car that drives itself gets into an accident, so it's going to be a headline. The, the, the whole concept there of lithium burning, though, if we have an alternative that's a safer type of battery, yeah, that's lighter, that's denser, that doesn't burn in the same way, well, we're going to go that way. We're not there yet. It, Interestingly enough, by the way, if you look at the safety record of a Tesla for 100,000 miles, it's phenomenally better than any other car. Yeah. And yet it, when one of them crashes, it makes headlines. Yeah, well, it's gonna. And this is, this is the thing. George Will said this in a speech. Journalists don't report airplanes that land safely. They should, though. They should. And the reason why they don't is because it's, that's the norm. We have not had a major airplane crash in the United States in like a decade, more maybe. I'd have to look at it. It's been a long time, but we still hear about airplane crashes and it's still a big deal. Even when it happens somewhere else in the world, oh, airplane crash killed a lot of people over way over there. We get the same level of reporting on an airplane crash in, in Kenya as we do on a tsunami that kills 200,000 people, which is I think a little bit of a of an interest um, volume problem. Let's turn the volume down on one and maybe up on another. That that's the thing is that we're going to only report news is only things that are newsworthy. That means it doesn't happen every day. We got another question. Good one too. From John, he was he sent us a picture of the intelligent investor. Uh, column from the Wall Street Journal says time to prune your portfolio. He wants to know how can you tell if you're if your stock investment managers are doing this. John, it's pretty simple. There are some port there are some stocks that are ridiculously overpriced at this point, and it's tempting to hang on to those if you have them. Uh, some of the high tech, larger companies, Apple is one of them. Uh, Google, Alphabet, is another one. Uh, Microsoft is another one. There's a series of these companies that have price to earnings ratios that are kind of ridiculous. And that's the places that I think the article is talking about pruning out of the portfolio. They're, they're running up, they've run up, they they probably have more to run up. The problem is that eventually they're going to fall and it's better in my opinion to get out early and make, take your profits in those than it is to hang on to clearly overpriced stocks. On the other hand, if you're looking at your stock investments and you find out that you're mainly in value stocks, by definition, value stocks are not overpriced, so you don't need to prune them. So there's your answer. The answer is to keep an eye on your stock portfolio and the price earnings ratio of the various funds or whatever you've got and see if they're ridiculously high. If they're ridiculously high, then you need to be questioning, why do you have this in my portfolio if it's ridiculously high? And if the answer is, well, it's been going up, so I'm hanging on to it then you probably need to find somebody else to manage your portfolio. And this this will be helpful in some areas as well. This is this sounds like I'm coming from a completely different subject, but it's the same thing. How can you tell if it's going on in your money managers? Retail trading 
on the market, which generally is is accounts for between um, six and ten percent of trading. That's we would call that a lot of times we call that amateur investors or people that are doing trading in their own account. A retail trader is not an institution. And right as the pandemic took off, retail trading took off as well. So we're seeing a huge volume of trade coming from them. At the end of, of uh, last month, according to Bloomberg Intelligence, um, retail trading was almost as much in volume as mutual funds and hedge funds combined. So when you're asking how can you tell if your if your managers are doing it, you number one thing you can do is you can check the turnover rate and the volume at the mutual fund if it's a manager in a mutual fund. You can look at capital gains, that's a big one. If they're selling stuff from their portfolio, I highly recommend checking through Morningstar here. You can look back at at the portfolio one quarter to the next and say, oh, they dropped these positions. Which positions were those? So that's one of the things that we think is the job of a professional is to track that stuff to make sure that the managers of big portfolios are not getting drunk off of the market highs, getting highs off the market drunks, something yeah, like that. It's both. Uh, some, some matter of that. And we do think that the market is high and that it's a bit drunk right now, but we also don't see a near term end to that because what they're drunk and high on right now is all this excess cash in the economy. And they're going to stay drunk and high on that till that cash starts coming out of the economy again. And that means people will need to be traveling and actually having the house that they want to buy be sold to them right now. A, a big drain to cash in the economy is buying houses because the supply for houses is not as much as the demand for houses a lot of people that want to buy a house cannot buy a house, so they still have a lot of money. What are they doing with all that excess money? And some of them are playing with it. When we look at the jump from around 6% of the market volume being retail to around 25% of the market volume being retail, that means there's a lot of extra money being thrown around by people that don't do the money throw around thing very often. So that's part of the drunk, the high that's going on in the market. There's a lot of money sitting out there that's not normally there. Why isn't it taking place at mutual funds? Because mutual funds have more regulations on how they do it. A big chunk of why we're seeing the volume up so high on the retail side is that there's a lot more margin. There's a lot more borrowed money being used in the market by retail than as usual. And mutual funds, not all mutual funds, but a lot of mutual funds restrict themselves from using margin. Uh, that's part of the reason why we like mutual funds in general is that you can tell whether or not they're using margin on a regular basis, whether they're borrowing against their assets to buy more, which gives you a higher risk. There's an interesting aspect to this market that is unique in my experience and I can't find it in history. So it's, it is interesting. Well, actually I can find hints of it in the 1920s. And that is this market is a runaway bull market. It keeps going up, keeps breaking records, keeps going up. Some of the stocks at the upper end of the large cap growth, particularly, and some of the tiny ones have reached 
price-to-earnings ratios that are just absurd, which means that this is the sign that a bull market is frothy. It's it's uh, it's traditionally the sign that it's about to crash. But the problem is, this bull market is running on an economy that still hasn't fully recovered. It's got a lot of room to go. It's got a lot of room to grow. And every indication in the economy says it's still got a lot of legs under it. Bear markets, sudden bear markets, and the classic one in, in history that we can, many of us can remember, is the 2000 through 2002 market collapse. A lot of most people don't remember the 1973 bear market, 1973 through 75. But it was pretty much the same type of market where the economy started downhill, but the market kept on going up. It's the, I call it a wildy coyote market. Because that's where Wiley Coyote runs off the top of the mesa and goes, yipes, when he looks yeah. down and realizes nothing right. underneath him and he falls and smacks into the ground, usually followed by an anvil. And we've, um, we've talked a lot about Tesla being, you know, the electric car, the, the quality and all that good stuff. Their price to earnings ratio is 1,160 right now. It only have to earn, we only have to keep it 1,160 years to earn back the price of the stock. Right. Earnings. So if you had purchased it at today's earnings in the time of the Byzantine Empire, the earnings would have paid back the price of the stock around now. And the problem is that there's a lot of other electric car companies coming along, and it's going to take a while for them to start up a few years, but, they're, but they will be there, and they're, they're going to catch up. Tesla does not have a wide motive, but it does have a head start. Yeah, and this is, this is the point. Tesla is a good company. It's overpriced. I think Tesla is probably going to be around for a while. Barring some horrible accident involving Elon Musk, I think Tesla is going to be around for a while. And we said things like that about Steve Jobs when he was running Apple. back When he came back to the Apple um, management from running Pixar and started developing new technologies, we said the biggest danger to the long-term health of Apple is Steve Jobs dropping dead without a successor. So he spent a long time building a successor because they told him he was going to drop dead. He did a good job there. Elon Musk does not have a successor. He's, there's nobody even in the wings waiting to possibly train as a successor. So there's a danger involved in Tesla beyond the stock price being too high, beyond the fact that it's a great company. And they can fix that. This is one of the things, you know, 10 years ago, I was saying Tesla's got this big problem with battery technology needing to be improved. Well, who improved the battery technology to bring it up? They did. They were the only people working on it. So now they've got a functional set of technology. Uh, Tesla, I would certainly not say buy it right now. And there are a lot of people that are buying Tesla right now, which is why it's price to earnings ratio is so high. Why it's, why it's up, I mean... Goodness, it's up from uh, 2018, it was at $61. It was flat there. It dropped down to 45 to 42 during 2019. $42 a share. Pandemic hit. It's now worth $729 a share. Have they increased the technology that they were working with in 2019 or 2020? I mean, they, there's no great improvement on anything that they've done. There's just a lot more money in the economy right now. I think a lot of people got stimulus money. Yeah. That didn't really need it. 
And they said, this is found money. I can play with it. And they started playing with it. And as they all played with it at once, the prices of a lot of stocks went up. So they continued to play with it some more. Yeah. And eventually, I'll say this with a great deal of confidence. I strongly believe eventually they will get their comeuppance. And eventually we will see a correction in this market and they will be scared. They will suddenly realize that markets go down as well as up. And I think when I say we're not due for a major bear market, it's not to say we're not due for a correction. Corrections come for no particular reason. They just pop out of nowhere and the market goes down. And why does it go down? Because a lot, if you got 20% of the market volume being done by amateurs who expect the market to go up and they 26. all decide to sell at the same 26% and they all decide to sell at the same time, we'll get a correction in the market. Yeah. So just be aware that corrections happen. Corrections are necessary in the market to wither, to wean out the deadwood. Bitcoin right now. we're going to get one. Bitcoin. Eventually we're going to get one. Bitcoin's down 20% right now from so it's in a, what it was like three weeks ago. It's in so a bear somebody market. Lost, somebody lost a lot of money in Bitcoin. Yeah. And other people have made huge amounts of money in Bitcoin. So yep. we're pointing this out to say what's different about Bitcoin than three weeks ago? Nothing. Really nothing. But it's down 20%. Uh, and we'll be back on the other side with more of the personal wealth coach. And we're back with more of the personal wealth coach with Jake and Jeff McClure. And we, we've been hitting some pretty good, pretty good subjects. I think the, the retail investor side of things, I think that's right up there as one of the biggest events on, in the marketplace during, during this particular recession and the pandemic. I just want to emphasize something. You will be, this is the point in a very bull market period when people get tempted to get into, get insider information from somebody and get into something that's quote going up and going up very, very fast. And, and the temptation is there. It's called the fear of missing out. I strongly recommend you stay away from there with any money that you can't afford to lose a hundred percent of it's literally hundred percent of that money. There's a lot of stocks out there, a lot of small stocks, particularly that uh, have been pushed into stratospheric numbers, not just Tesla. And basically if you've heard of a stock, it's probably overpriced at this point. Yeah, I agree. Um, if it's something that, that somebody is promoting to you at the moment, it is probably one that's already up already high. Just keep that in mind. You want to talk about you want us to talk about unemployment? Yeah, let's do that. You we've got some good news in the in the email uh, newsletter about that. If somebody if anybody wants to read that, they can go to our website to do it tpwc.com. But can you do the breakdown on that? Well, basically there's a there's a big problem. We have eight and a half million, eight point four million people in the United States unemployed who are officially looking for work, six percent of the of the working population. Now we've had another three and a half percent of the working population has dropped out. So if you add those back in, we would have nine and a half percent unemployment at this point. Three and a half percent have dropped out. They're no longer looking for work, but they were working before the pandemic. A lot of those are women uh, and in some cases men who are taking care of children at home. Who previously were in daycare centers or in school, but we don't know all about that. 
but we have about 7.4 million job openings. So it, simple logic says if you have 8.4 million people unemployed and there's 7.4 million job openings, you should only have 1 million people unemployed. Well, there's a little problem with that logic, and that is that in many cases, the jobs that are open are not suitable for the people who are unemployed. The biggest layoffs and the biggest unemployment tend to go down towards the low end of the economic spectrum, the people who are making $15 and less per hour. A lot of those people got laid off first, which is incidentally why the average wages have risen during the pandemic and likely, by the way, likely to fall again in the statistics soon. There should, there should be an actual uh, anomaly in the statistics caused by this. It look like wages are falling because the lower income people are getting hired back. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to, it's likely to happen in the future. They're really not falling. It's just a lot of uh, lower income people are getting hired back. Right. But the problem with trying to hire back low income people at this point, and we're see, I've actually talked to employers who are having this problem, and uh, the beige book from the Fed, the Kansas, the Kansas City, the St. Louis Fed, the beige book, pointed it out as well as uh, surveys from uh, market and other places. The issue is that people are interviewing a lot of people. They find, After they get done doing the interviews, they select, for example, one guy in the beige book, one employer wrote, I we hired 20 people and one of them showed up for work. So there's this critical shortage of lower income people working in the United States. And why is that? Well, this isn't true for everybody because there's only about, uh, let's see, what percentage of the people? Only 2.6% of, of the workforce is drawing unemployment benefits while 6% are unemployed. So, but that 2%, that 2.6%, many of them are in the lower income brackets. And here's the problem. In the state of Texas, if a person earns $15 an hour, which is well above the minimum wage. By the way, Texas's unemployment rate is 6.9% higher than the rest of the country. So the person who was making $15 an hour before, after subtraction of just payroll taxes, assuming he pays no income, no income tax withholding, he'd earn $555 a week. His unemployment insurance in the state of Texas is $312 per week. Add in the fellow, add in the $300 per week that the federal supplement provides, and he's now making $612 a week as long as he's looking for work and doesn't take work. If he takes work at $15 an hour, his pay drops to $5.55 a week, and he has to work. So there is there's definitely an element there because there's everywhere I, as I travel around, everywhere I go, I see now hiring signs up in the windows. But there's still a big chunk of folks, obviously, if only 2.6% of the people are drawing unemployment insurance, then there's obviously a 3.4% of the people who are unemployed, who are looking for work, who are not drawing unemployment insurance. So there's another factor, and that is the jobs in many cases are appearing in places that they weren't before. The jobs are appearing where the people aren't. The people were there, their job disappeared, it hasn't come back, and their job, the unemployment appears somewhere else and they can't move. Uh, so it'll take us a while to work this out. But we really won't know what the true unemployment rate is until after September when the, un when the federal, un let me tell you, when the federal unemployment benefit goes away. About October, we'll see what the real unemployment rate is. But until then, we really don't know. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, the, the way you just broke that down, because 
I've seen multiple multiple opinion pieces in the Wall Street Journal in the last week about we're paying people not to go to work. And it's a true thing for certain people that are on the low end of the spectrum. It's it's easier to not go to work and keep getting paid than to go to work and get a lower pay. I think the big piece to understand there is that's about a third of the unemployed people that we have officially unemployed. There's another number that that is listed here, and I got to find it. Um, and that's about 3.5% of the workforce is no longer in the workhorse. Yeah, I said that. Yeah. So I, I was just making sure that I had the right number from from what you had just said. What happened there? Well, we have certainly seen it. People are retiring early. Or maybe they were set to retire already. And there's a lot of people that were set to retire already because this pandemic also coincided with a big chunk of the baby boomer population hitting that right age for retirement. So if they were getting laid off anyway, and there were a lot of older people in the workforce that were laid off rather than the younger people. This is an interesting thing. There's probably some kind of lawsuits that are going on about that right now. We're just looking at the numbers, and it's pretty clear a lot, a lot of older people were laid off and decided to just go ahead and start taking Social Security. So we saw a big uptake, uptick in Social Security recipients that have been planning to do it or just decided, hey, I'm going to do it a little bit early. I don't want to go back into the job market. Some people that went back into the job market in 2019 because it was just so lucrative. We talked about this at the time, that the unemployment rate was actually lower than what we were seeing in 2019 because there were people coming back into the job market that had been out before. Now we've lost... 3.5% 3.5% of, of the volume of our market as people have retired early. So those are pieces to, to add to the puzzle. We're about out of time. So you're gonna, some, we got to wrap up number, right now. Put some numbers on that. 91% of the people, the 91% of the jobs that were pre-pandemic are available in Texas and California right now. Texas has got 96%. So we're still down the number of total jobs. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do fiduciary investment advice and portfolio management for people of high net worth. You can contact us by phone. There's voicemail on the weekends, live people during the week locally at 254-947-1111 or 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can find our podcast. You can Contact us through the forum there. Email us directly at jeff or jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, thanks for listening.